Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. You're never fully ready for a job. If you're ready, then, you know, that means you're not open to learning or anything. And the first step is a decision. That's a first step. It's just a decision. I am going to get out of this. With that urgency comes focus. You realize, I can't do everything. What does success mean to you? Sometimes people climb the ladder of success and find it's the wrong ladder. If you're not busy doing things that bring you joy, then you're wasting a life. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 33 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Marguerite Areen. Welcome, Marguerite. Thank you, Harsha. It's delightful to be here with you and with all who are listening. Fantastic. Um, Before we begin, I wanted to thank the listeners for helping Reframe and Reset Your Career be listed in Max List Top Career Podcasts of 2022. I'm so honored to have been included in this list. Now on with the show. Marguerite advises and facilitates leaders of growing firms in getting clarity on the results they want and implementing strategies for success with the added bonus of joy. She is an expert in strategy articulation and culture alignment, and in particular in the balanced scorecard. She has added value to organizations in the private, public, non-governmental, and educational sectors. As well as a coach, she is a mindfulness meditation teacher and a certified laughter yoga leader who knows that laughter releases creativity because she laughs a lot. Marguerite is the author of two books, Forget It, What's the Point? and Free and Laughing, Spiritual Insights in Everyday Moments. And she is also an avid blogger. Welcome, Marguerite. Thank you, Harsha, and lots of love and congrats on the success of your podcast. We first spoke just when you were starting it, so I'm so proud of you. Well, that, that's very kind. And, and actually, I remember you actually said that you were listening to the first few episodes. So it's, right. always, it's always nice um, when you see things growing. And, and I think it, it's interesting in life because sometimes people uh, look at success or people who have achieved success and it doesn't happen overnight. That Sometimes you have to put in you know, a lot of work. So I think it shows you know, hopefully uh, everybody who's listening today that if you do put in the work in, you're not guaranteed of success. It does help, doesn't it? That is true. You know, they, they are saying success is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. So you got to be prepared, which means doing the work. No, and take, you've done take, the work. 
<laughs> but th thanks so much. So I'm a big fan of the arts. So is there a performer, song, book or film which you'd like to share? It doesn't have to be obscure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many, many, because I also am a big fan of the arts. In fact, I grew up in Jamaica, you know, going to ballet and music lessons. But I'm sure you will, you and your listeners will not be surprised when I said Jamaica for me to say that my favorite is Bob Marley. <laughs> and my, I, there's a, one of his songs, I mean, many of his songs I love, but one of his songs is very, very special to me. And it's Three Little Birds. I love it because of all the songs I have in my, you know, my Apple playlist, it's the one that just reminds me about joy in the little things no matter what's happening and when I moved to Canada in 2009 and you know when you move to a new place um, you know you're, you're struggling uh, to, to fit in to find your place to find out the job and so on and I would come home from days of rejection or things not going well and I would I brought my three little dogs with me to Canada and I would leash them up and off we would go walking in the park and I would just sing three little birds and they'd be trotting along and I would just feel so joyful in the assurance that as Bob say, every little thing going to be all right. So I, that's my go-to if I ever have a little dip in my emotions. No, I just love that choice. And as I said before, when we were speaking off air, my favorite Bob Marley song is Waiting in Vain. Um, lo just love it. Um, I'm also a big fan of Scar. Um, so yeah, yes. just love, love, <laughs> yeah, yeah lo love, love all that, that music. Yeah, yeah, great, great tunes. Picking up on the sort of Jamaican theme, obviously you grew up in Jamaica um, yes. and there was a family business. And after graduating from university, you took over running your family business. Um, how great. did you fi find that? <laughs> that was baptism by fire, almost. Um, so what happened is that um, we, there are three siblings, my elder brother, myself, and my sister. And he is a mechanical engineer, and he was running the family business. And I, I had just graduated from the University of the West Indies with a degree in management studies. And I went to work for another company as a you know a clerical position entry-level stuff and about six months in he called me my brother calls me and he says listen I've been accepted to go and do my MBA at Harvard Business School and I need somebody to run the family business and I think you'll be the best person I was 23 Harsha I was five feet tall still am my face was as round as a full moon I looked about 16 and he was saying, I think you'd be the best person to go and run this family business. It was a woodworking business. With, and I'd be the boss of 70 men. <laughs> and I did it. So it was tough. It was also a very um, difficult time in Jamaica. It was in the 70s. And it was a time when Jamaica politically, you know, the Cold War was going on and Jamaica was aligning itself with Cuba which hmm, not a good idea as far as America is concerned, right? So there was a lot of instability and stuff going on. People were migrating. People were just fleeing the island. A lot ended up in Canada and in the U.S. Some, not as many in the U.K. And, and so it's a very difficult time 
in the economy and the society. And then here was I, this little 23-year-old running this business. By the way, I should also mention, I also became the boss of my parents. <laughs> that was interesting. But I did it and I, I had to toughen up real fast, like real fast. And in fact, um, I got a, a nickname from it, Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> I was that tough. <laughs> it was a great experience i mean to be the ceo at 23 years old to to um i got involved with the jamaica exporters association jamaica manufacturers association so i was hobnobbing with all the top business people in jamaica i was you know meeting ministers and prime ministers helping to advocate for policy it, it was really a wonderful experience at that age yeah no, I, um, I, yeah, I just love that story, Marguerite, because I think there are so many interesting lessons from there. I think when you're young, uh, sometimes you don't think about the reality of the situation. You know, you just have to do it. And especially if your elder brother tells you to do it, yes. then, you know, uh, you just go and do it. Um, you seem like a very obedient sort of person you know, in terms right. of... Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but then I think, you know, when you actually get into the position... Uh, and, and obviously, you're, you're, you're highly talented. You want to make the best of it. Um, and I think when you actually are the CEO, maybe mentally you start thinking like a CEO. When you're dealing with um, the top people in Jamaica, then you almost grow into that 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 role. Um, and I think sometimes it's it's almost tricking your mind into believing that you are something, or uh, if you yeah. visualize um, success. I mean, say with this podcast. I, I wasn't uh, an experienced podcaster, but then you you just have to learn and you have to get good. Otherwise, nobody's going to listen to you. Um, so I, I just yeah. love your story. Well, you know, one of the big lessons is that, which and I share this with my clients, is that you're never ready. You're never fully ready for a job. If you're ready, then, you know, that means you're not open to learning or anything. So so I, I was not ready at all, but I did it anyway, and it turned out okay. And I recommend to them that when they're hiring and looking at people to promote, you know, don't wait. Don't say, well, I don't think they're ready yet. Um, take a chance with people, you know, give them the support. I had lots of support, I must say. And, you know, if you mess up, you mess up. But the, what really kept me going was the responsibility I had for the family because um, this family business supported my parents. It had sent me to university. It had sent my sister to university. And, and everything that my parents owned was tied up and pledged to the business. So I, I couldn't fail. I had to succeed because the last thing I wanted would be for my parents to end up as paupers. So... How was it like working in a very male-dominated company? Because I think you were saying that you were the only female with 70 men. I mean, that must yes. have been quite tough. It was, which I guess is how I ended up being called Mrs. Satter. Because <laughs> you just, I had to pull myself up to my full five feet in height and um, develop a booming voice. You know, a lot, a lot of times now when people meet me in person, having, you know, been on webinars or spoke to me over the phone they said you know I thought you'd be taller I said well I have a big voice I've had to develop this big voice it's very authoritative voice um, but one of the peculiarities about Jamaica is that it is either number one or number two country in the world that where you're most likely to have a female manager oh wow 
Yeah, it, it's really not a thing. We still have glass ceilings issues because when you when you you know when you get up to board, you'll see the board still looking very male dominated. But female managers and leaders and CEOs are pretty common. And, and I just I just love that because I think it, it does make such a difference if you can see somebody who looks like yourself in oh, yes. positions of authority. That makes yes. such a difference. Um, yes. And it's funny, my mom is a, a, an anesthetist and she's had, has a, had a very successful career. So I just assume all you know, senior anesthetists are women. And, and yeah. But actually there seem to be many more than you think. So it's funny, sometimes it's that first person who's there and then maybe other people see that and they get attracted to a particular uh, role or whatever. But yeah, no, I, I just love that. And then sort of after the family business you also decided to go to harvard uh, business school um, yes and, and how, how was that experience so what happened there is that we actually i did we you know construction is cyclical so um we realized we were at the peak of our construction boom we saw signs of it going down my parents had got to the age of 60s so they were kind of ready to retire and i said you know i think i'll go to harvard i want to go and do something else I applied and I always tell people that I applied. I decided that I, if I didn't get to the, into one of the top three business schools, I wasn't going to go. So I only applied to three, which horrifies some of my classmates. Only three? I'm like, yep. So I applied to Harvard, Wharton, and Stanford. Got into all three and um, then had a tough decision, which every now and then I second guess myself. I'm like, should I have gone to Stanford? In hindsight, that was just at the beginning of the whole dot-com and Silicon Valley and so on. So I would have been in a totally different place. Anyway, can't live in regrets. So I went to Harvard Business School and it was great. It was liberating for me to spend two years um, immersed in such an intensive academic, but also very practical environment because we use case studies. I had a lot to process from my experience in the family business. It was not a happy experience. Um, there was a lot of stuff that I needed to let go of. And, you know, so it was almost like a cleansing for me to, to go to HBS. Fortunately, I didn't have to go on the job um, application treadmill because I actually had a job lined up for me in Jamaica when I got back. So I was really able to just enjoy the time and um, learn and to make great friends and travel a bit. It was a wonderful experience. Oh, wow. And I think you're the first HBS alumni on the show. So congrats. Hi, well, look at that. <laughs> well, Dory, I think, was at the Divinity School. So that's right. I think yes. she was the first uh, Harvard graduate. Yeah, but that's you're, right. you're the first HBS graduate. Okay, go HBS. <laughs> And, and and the funny thing, um, Marguerite, was that I was looking at your Twitter uh, profile because I, I followed you on Twitter and I saw that you have quite a famous uh, follower, um, a pr President Barack Obama. Uh, <laughs> what's the story behind that? And, you know, I didn't even know. It wasn't. It was like a few years ago that um, a friend said to me, by the way, you know that Barack Obama follows you? I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how that happened. All I can say, there, there are two things why he may. One is that there's a Harvard network, which actually is 
pretty small, especially if you look at the, the black cohort as a subset. So it's very small. So there's that. And the other is that I actually met him once in uh, 2000, when, when did he, anyway, it was like when he had just, his, at the beginning of his first term, I um, went on a visit to the White House. Let's just say I had a friend who was working there, you know, <laughs> Harvard has its benefits. And um, I met him and um, it was an amazing experience. He's so personable and just such a warm human being. I, yeah, wonderful, wonderful person. They're fantastic. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and you're the first person I've met who's met Barack Obama. <laughs> you know the story with that too, that it was actually, that was my, um, my daughter's 16th birthday. So that was my birthday gift to her. To, um, oh, I've you. never been able to top that birthday. <laughs> By the way, I also met Biden. On the same trip. Oh wow! Fantastic. No, that's amazing. And and actually, I think the interesting point coming from that is that um, sometimes we're a lot closer to people than we think oh. we are, and it's that whole thing about like, there's that six degrees of separation. But actually, I think if you look on LinkedIn, it's sometimes two or three degrees, and you don't realize how close you are to people. And and it's funny with the the start of this podcast, it very much came from reaching out to Dory Clark, who I didn't really know. I sent her mm. a random email and she kindly replied. And then there was another person uh, who I had as uh, my second guest, Dr. Christian Bush. I saw one of his videos on YouTube and then I randomly sent him an email on LinkedIn. He, he was like a second order connection. And then he replied. And I think it, it just shows that this whole idea of limiting beliefs, don't think about it, just take action. As long as you're polite and you're not being rude, sure. there's no harm in reaching yeah. out to people. I mean, what, what do you think, Marguerite? I totally agree with you. And you know, the funny thing is that they're, you know, these people that we hold up, oh my gosh, you know, Barack or Dory or someone else, I could never, they're they're human beings just like we are. And most of them are very gracious and do appreciate being reached out to and, you know, connected with because they're humans. They want that human connection as well. So I absolutely agree with you. That being said, when we reach out, one of the things that we that stops us from reaching out is our fear of rejection. So we have to learn to reach out without attachment to the result. Just reach out. And as I said, there's a 50-50 chance the person will say yes or the person may say no and just move on. Or the person, or maybe just not yet. It may happen at another time. So, so for sure. But it does take a certain mindset around knowing you can take action. And and I have never found six degrees of separation. It's a fun game I play sometimes, you know, sort of a parlor game. And it's at the most three or four degrees of separation. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I, and I just love that point you made about rejection, because I think you know, life is just filled with rejection. Uh, unfortunately, whether it's that girl you want to date who turns you down <laughs> or the job that you want. I think that's why you're like waiting in vain by Bob Marley, you know, Harsha. There's a story there. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, <laughs> but it's the people I think who can manage failure, manage rejection, who I think have a huge advantage in in this world. Yes. Because I, I'm very much believe it, it's a numbers game that you have to approach uh, a certain number of people, whether uh-huh. it's for um, to get great podcast guests like yourself, or whether it's to um, get work from clients, or whether it's to get that right job, and if you get rejected, you just have to deal with it. And I think, and it's the people who don't, who just stew and they ruminate, they just don't move on. And I think that's quite sad because, you know, sometimes you, you think there is a particular job that you should be doing, or you think there's a particular podcast guest and it doesn't work out, but actually probably the better one, oh, sorry, the net, the one you get is the right one. Um, I mean, what, what, what do you think, Marguerite? Oh, I totally agree with you. The other thing is just to be open. You know, when you're not tied to the the podcast guests that you are targeted uh, targeting, then you're just opening. And I don't know about you, Harsha, but more and more I'm just finding like, you know, if you I I sometimes it's ever happened to you like, you know, I really would love to meet so and so, and then all of a sudden so and so emails you. <laughs> or reaches out to you or it's it's just uncanny just just putting that intention that thought out there is amazing and being open to it it's amazing what that can can bring to so i i'm very excited about that aspect of the sort of being part not 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 so much doing because the doing can make you very focused being almost blinded you know um but when you just say okay universe this is my intention bring on what you're going to bring on it's just amazing what what can happen i totally love that point so what what did you sort of go and do um after hbs marguerite so i went back to jamaica and i was um contracted to a jamaican conglomerate and um, i was in their merchant bank and i was bored banking is not my thing and so they were as working on a deal for them to purchase a controlling interest in a food processing and distribution business. And I went to the chairman and I said, the name of it was Scott's. And I said, I'd like to run Scott's. And he looked at me and he chuckled and he said, you think you can? And I'm like, listen, (laughs) I just come back from Harvard Business School. I can do anything. (laughs) And so I did. And let me tell you, that was the best job I've ever had. I loved every minute of it. I loved the people. I, I, it was wonderful. But the time came when um, I realized that what was needed for the company was not being provided by the parent company. And so I decided to strike out on my own. And so I jokingly tell people I've only ever been employed to someone else for four years of my life, (laughs) of my entire career. And that was the four years. So since then, which is like 1991, I have been self-employed in many different permutations. And I just like that, the point you made there about looking at the job with Scott's and saying, look, it's not, it's just not working out and actually making the conscious decision to to leave. Because I think sometimes people are very fearful about leaving something which they have they they think oh better stick it out and see what happens but i think it's much better to sort of be on the front foot and take control 
and then you're navigating your future. And, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes it's not about um, making the right choice. It's just about taking action um, and then seeing what happens. What do you think, Marguerite? Yeah, you're so right. That idea about you never know it's a, if it's the right choice, but you just take that first step. And that, that first step out of it um, really frees you up and opens you up to what's next. Um, and you don't have to see what I'll be doing 10 years time. Listen, I never thought that I would be living in Canada. What? <laughs> that was not in my plans. But here I am and enjoying it. So, you know, you got to be open. If something is not working for you, don't let fear keep you back. I see so many. I, a lot of the coaching I'm doing is with people who are 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 stuck they're they're in fear they're not doing well they they have a yearning to do something else and oh but the mortgage i'm like okay all right so what do you need to do with this mortgage (laughs) you know um and but once you take that step and the first step is a decision that's a first step it's just a decision i am going to get out of this so when i was leaving scott's i I made the decision and I was actually there for 18 months because I actually didn't, it took me that long to just action it, but I made the decision. And, and so things fell into place. I just love that point that you're making because I think sometimes, look, it's just about looking at the situation you're in and okay, it might, it, it might be difficult, but at least just take a decision and you don't have to act now um, because I've, I've seen people who are in jobs and they're not happy but they're, they're earning a, a reasonable amount of money uh, and they can suck it up to a certain extent. But then I think um, if, you, if you're in a situation where you're just not happy, eventually your confidence goes, uh, yes. your joy for life goes, and then you'll be in a situation where maybe you're not performing and you're sacked. So I think it's much better earlier on if you can say, well, okay, in uh six months a year, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to leave. And, but, and almost like reverse engineer what do I have to do over that period to be in a situation where I can leave? And especially, I think, if you're in a good headspace, you interview so much better, don't you? Absolutely. And, you know, um, sometimes people will resign and they say, oh, it, it's a, a rash decision. But a decision doesn't have to be rash. You, I made the decision 18 months before I actually handed in my resign- resignation. It wasn't a rash decision. It was a very well thought out decision. I was making my plans and organizing. Um, So it might seem rash to others, but within me, I knew it wasn't rash. I had carefully, very carefully considered it. And actually talking about Canada, how was that move um, from Jamaica to Canada? So when people ask me here, well, why in the world did you move from Jamaica to Canada? I'll just look at them and I'll say, for the weather, why else? So I've been in Jamaica a number of years, got married, had children, brought up my children, and they just got divorced. (laughs) And they just came a time when I wanted something different. I wanted to experience, really experience a different country. Uh, Jamaica had become difficult to live in for me in terms of um, being able to travel, which I love to do. It was getting more and more difficult to travel on a Jamaican passport. My children were 14 and 16 at the time. 
and so we decided to to try Canada and uh, we came in 2009. I really, to be honest, hadn't thought it out that well in terms of what I was going to do. So I was a little lost when I came in, so I had to sing Three Little Birds so often. Um, but eventually it came to me that, okay, um, my clients in Jamaica and in the Caribbean kept calling me. And I'm like, well, why am I here in Canada hustling you know, to convince someone here to to hire me when my clients down there are like, Marguerite, are you available? So I decided to do what I've always done, which is to start my own business. And that's what I've been doing since then, since about 2010. Moving on to the work that you're doing now, Marguerite, do you want to tell um, us a little bit about that? So my work is in strategy. I love strategy. All my life, I've been a general manager. I'm one of those very, very few people who have not come from a specific discipline like accounting or operations. I was a general manager from when I was 23. And the Harvard um, curriculum is general management. And then I went into consulting. So all my life, I've had this big picture um, view um, that doesn't come from any particular um, technical discipline. And so I love strategy. I started consulting and then I discovered the world of facilitation and I have become a facilitator and I absolutely enjoy and revel in um, pulling groups of people together and just helping them to pull out their own wisdom. I, I just love to see the light bulbs going off and as I guide them through processes. Um, I'm very proud of the work I've done with the Balanced Scorecard because I've been able to take a very, you know, uh, certain planning methodology that's widely used by Fortune 500 companies. And I've been able to simplify it so that small um, entities in government, non-government business can use it. Then I started to help my clients through the implementation challenges. And what I found is that there were two areas that you go through, three actually, that are common from a balanced scorecard strategy assignment. One is organizational redesign, um, restructuring and process redesign. The other is culture and the other is leadership. I really am excited about the work in leadership and culture. I think they're interlinked. And so because of that focus on, on helping the leadership, that took me into coaching. And so now I am also a coach. So I coach leaders and their teams one-on-one um, -on -one. and I work with them now on helping them to define their culture as well and that is really really exciting it's it's based on work I actually did when I went to Scott's I actually there was this moment where um, a sales rep opened the door and came into the office and he just stopped and he looked around and he said what a happy place and I said ah that's culture hmm. <laughs> So I used to travel. So what I do, most of my work has been virtual, online. All my coaching is online and um, working from home from, for decades. But I also had a little um, time to think about what I want to be doing, you know, five, 10 years time. And one day I was out on a walk with my dog and um, it just hit me. I had this very visceral vision that I was going to be teaching meditation. I've been a lifelong meditator. 
And, and so I came back into my office and I found an online program and I signed up and I am now a mindfulness meditation teacher. And I'm actually now in the process of uploading my course to online. So, but I really have a passion about taking it into the workplace because my own thing is around joy at work, that work should be joyful. We spend so much of our time there. There's no reason why work should not be joyful. It's, it's how so many, how we find meaning in our lives, right? So why are we going to the place that we're supposed to find meaning, contribution, and being miserable? That doesn't make sense. And I think meditation and mindfulness is, is a, amazing tool for to bring joy calm harmony into the workplace you know i, yeah. I love that marguerite because i think you know i'm i'm a, I'm a buddhist so obviously i'm fully oh, aware I didn't of, know that. <laughs> fully aware of meditation well yes it's, it's one of those things where i think when you're born into something yes. you don't realize because i think people who who become buddhist or get into meditation they're intentional uh, they make right. a decision Whereas I think if you're born a Buddhist, you're aware of the things that are going along. And, and actually, it's, a, it's not really a religion. It's a philosophy um, right. it's about not being attached. Um, but, but actually, I started um, trying to meditate more at a, a local class. It's, it's a Zen Buddhist monastery. Mm-hmm. And, and they're really very strict. And they do these half an hour, 45-minute meditations. And I'd never meditated for that long before. And literally, you have to sit still and you cannot yeah. move. And yes. I never thought I'd be able to do it, but but you, you, you can get it. Yeah. I think what, once you learn to focus, obviously mm-hmm. your mind at the beginning, it does wonder. But once you do learn to focus, it's actually, it's very powerful. It's freedom. It's, yeah. No, no, totally. It's just freedom. And, and, you know, people are like, well, how come you're always smiling and joyful all the time? I'm like, because I'm not attached to the nonsense that's going in the world. I'm aware of it. And I'm committed to helping and doing things wherever I can. But I am i am not going to, as I said, I'm not going to let anyone steal my joy. And my meditation practice is a big part of that. So I, I don't do the, what, so what I try to do, my aim is to make it easy for people. So my, my, my little mantra is ease, grace, and joy. And, and so I will just, in my programs, I'll say, look, just meditate for 10 minutes a day. Because I think if you meditate for 10 minutes per day and you do that for a year, that in and of itself is going to do so much for your life that then you can go on to the next stage of sitting and meditating for 30 or 40 minutes or an hour. But if I go to people and say, hey, you need to meditate for an hour every day, they won't do it. So I just give them a little taste. Here's what we're going to do. Let's just keep focused. Let's just keep trying. You didn't do it today? Okay, do it tomorrow. There's always another day. So that's the approach I, t- I take with, um, with my meditation uh, teaching. And uh, so far, so good. No, no, and I think that's great, just bite-sized pieces. Because yes. I think when people try to take, make large changes uh, too quickly... It just doesn't work out. And then you feel guilty. It's like New Year's resolutions. Why put yourself under that pressure? I think, well, maybe you can have a goal you want to get to, but don't Mm. try and make big changes. Just do it. Make these small changes. And and if you do a little bit, as you're saying, 10 minutes a day, five minutes a day, it's something and it builds up and it just becomes so much easier, doesn't it? It does. Definitely. Yeah. 
And, and, and actually, just moving on to uh, your blog, um, uh, Marguerite, because I actually uh, read your recent blog about aging mm. and, and growing old. One of the, the big things I'm fascinated about in life is time. And I, I love the films of Christopher Nolan because he's always obsessed about time and yes. the great Gatsby, he was also obsessed about time. Yes. And, and, and I think sometimes it's, it's always trying to change your attitude towards time because look, yeah. we all have a finite amount of time, um, however long it is. Um, and you can't change anything about that. But I suppose what you can do is change your relationship to time. And, you know, I don't think you can be busy the whole time, but you can try and make the most of it. And mm -hmm. okay, even if the situation I'm in now isn't great, that doesn't have, that's not the way it has to be. You take that's action right. and you make change. I mean, what, what do you think, Marguerite? Do you want to uh, draw out a few things from your article, uh, which I, I loved? Absolutely. Well, I, I will, I tell anyone upfront, I was 66 years old last month, March. You're looking well. <laughs> Very, thank you. <laughs> Very proud of it because, you know, and, that, and that's the first mindset shift, right? Which is to say, hey, I'm 66 and I'm proud of it because, you know what, Harsha, you and I know many people who have will not get to that, have not gotten to that age. So I consider myself extremely fortunate to be 66. So that that's the first thing about um so-called aging. But I wrote that um, article because I was, I've always been struck. It's an, actually a blog that I've wanted to, to write for probably years by this phrase, growing old. And I've always been struck by why do we talk about growing, which is a process of learning and expansion and getting better and old when we view our sort of traditional especially in the, the northern societies, I think in the, in the developing world, we view aging a little different, right? But let's say we're in this society here. We view it as a time of decline where we, we're always wanting to look younger, to be long, younger, to appear younger. Well, I'm, I'm proud of every single one of my little laugh lines here. Let me tell you, because that means I've lived life. So I was just exploring that whole idea of um, growing, growing old and how we can embrace aging as something very, very positive. Clearly, it's a mindset shift, mindset shift but it's also about, you know, taking care of your body. D does it mean, you know, don't, don't give in and just go and lie down on the couch. Be active. Learn how to meditate. Learn new things. Read. Connecting with um, other generations and I feel strongly about this one and I think it, in particular when you're older in the workplace it's even more important a lot of my clients come to me and say well how do I deal with this you know millennials and these gen z people like they're I can't deal with them and I'll say listen first thing is to accept there's nothing wrong with them Just make friends with them <laughs> learn from them you know I look at them and one thing I notice about them is that they don't put up with nonsense that we used to put up with. You know, they're not sitting down in a job that they don't like for 40 years, like my generation would, right? So I'm like, whoa, that's very interesting. So I think you have to accept them as they are. Don't judge them and, and learn from them, learn about them and lead them, them differently. And it actually becomes um, a great source of joy to have the different generations in your family and also in your team at work rather than feeling threatened and then 
it means that you become a valued part of a team because they now reciprocate in terms of saying, hey, you see that Marguerite? She, she's not so bad, you know. She, she has a little sense. <laughs> yeah, I think there's just so much to embrace about this time of life. And yes, time is ticking by. Um, when I reached, um, I, there's a, I always say there's a difference between getting to 50 and getting to 60. When you get to 50, you can comfortably say, okay, I've gone halfway through my life. I mean, relatively comfortably, you know, yeah, it's possible. I can live to 100 if I'm lucky and take care of myself. But when you get to 60, you realize you're more than halfway through. So it brings some, or I want to say urgency about um, how you want to spend your days. I won't even say the rest of your life because the rest of our lives could just be tomorrow. With that urgency comes focus. You realize I can't do everything. I'm not going to do every. I'm not going to visit every place I want to visit. So which are the ones I really want to visit? So it brings a sense of perspective and a sense of focus to your life that actually is is very, very joyful. I'm enjoying learning from people who are older than me who will say, well, you know, Biden is too old to be president or something like that. I'm like, well, you know, so what you're saying is Warren Buffett to be too old to be working at Berkshire Hathaway. (laughs) What's this thing about at a certain age, you stop being useful. And even the fact that we speak about aging which is a process and truth yeah. is the moment we're born, we start aging. Yeah. And, and I do like that whole idea of focus, and I, but, but I think at any stage in life, if you are focused on what you really want to do and you don't drift, because I think sometimes when you're very young, you have a tendency to think, my God, I've got so much time in front of me. I can yes. do pretty much whatever I want. And Whereas if you can actually be really focused and think, okay, this is what I really like doing um, and I'm going to go for it. I know it may work, it may not work, but at least then, you know, okay. Uh, And sometimes it's that, you know, uh, fear of missing out or Mm -hmm. you're thinking somebody else has got a better life. It just creates a lot of problems. Whereas I think if you just say to yourself, I'll I'll commit to one thing, stick at it, uh, see what happens in six months in a year, you know, like a job situation, mm-hmm. and then reevaluate. Um, so I think, yeah, I just, I just, I just love that point. And and just sort of moving on to the the books you've written, mm. do you just want to give a quick overview um, as to yeah, maybe the the, the last one because I know we're sure. coming so up for our time. <laughs> yeah, so I'll tell a little story about the first one because that's way more interesting than the second one. But I will mention the second one. So the first one is called Free and Laughing, Spiritual Insights in Everyday Moments. And I have been blogging. I have been a blogger since 2006. And uh, my mother's 90th birthday was in December 2008. And people had always been saying, oh, my gosh, Marguerite, you write so well. You should write a book. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I, so I was thinking about, okay, so what are we going to give mommy for her birthday? And one day it hit me. I said, you know, I'm going to, I have been writing a book from my blog. So I sat down one day, it was one weekend, actually. It was actually a weekend when we had a tropical storm in Jamaica. So um, I didn't have, I couldn't go anywhere. So I just sat down and I went through all my blogs and I pulled them all together. And I'm like, here's a book. And um, I went and I organized and I got it printed. It took three months 
to get this book together. It was the most magical experience I've ever had. I had this amazing book launch, like a hundred and over a hundred people at this nightclub in, in Jamaica. And I remember the morning and the phone rang and somebody picked it up and, and um, said, oh, Margaret, um, the governor general, um, this is a message, the governor general and his wife will be attending your book launch. I'm like, what? I didn't invite them. But somehow my PR person had extended an invitation and they came to this book launch. You know what though that lesson was? When you are motivated by love, pure love, which is all I was motivated by to tell my mother how much I loved her, everything will just come together. I just, yeah, I just love that story, Marguerite, in terms of, I think, if, if it comes from the right place. And oh. I think whenever you're creating something, don't worry about whether people will, will like it. Just do good work. And yeah. eventually you'll find an audience. Yeah. Um, and there's no point trying to create something for somebody. Um, you know, just do the best you can. And, and, and as long as it you know, it's providing value, then I think people should like it, shouldn't they? Uh, yeah. And again, you're not attached to who likes it or who yeah. doesn't. So the second book, I when I moved to Toronto, I, I decided now having published one book, okay, maybe I need to learn how to write. <laughs> so I went to the University of Toronto and did a certificate in creative, creative nonfiction. And a part of that was the, uh, I had to do a final project with 22,000 words. So I said, well, if I'm writing 22,000 words, I am going to publish this. This is not going to be a manuscript that sits on my computer. So I decided to do this book. And one of my wonderful teachers, she became my book coach and coached me through it. She said something that to your point, folk, I didn't have mommy to write this book for, right? <laughs> so, so why am I writing it? To pass and get my certificate? Uh, I don't know. And then she said, you know, just, just think of one person that what you're writing would help. And I thought of a particular friend that I had who was just in pain um, because she just couldn't let go of a very painful experiences with her father. And so every time I was writing and, and doing this book, I was thinking of her and write it. So I wrote it for her. And then the, the other interesting twist about the book, it's called Forget It, What's the Point? Letting Go and Claiming Joy. Both books are stories, vignettes about my life and what I've learned. The issue of the foreword came up and I remember my coach saying, well, who's going to write the foreword? I said, Archbishop Tutu. And he said, okay. I said, <laughs> and he said, well, what happens if Archbishop Tutu doesn't do it? I said, well, then I won't have a foreword. <laughs> Marguerite, you're just showing off. Barack Obama, De Desmond Tutu. So that too emerged with ease, grace and joy. And um, I was very blessed to have had the Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, who I absolutely, he's my hero. Um, he did a foreword for that book. So I feel very blessed by that. So you, your next book, you'll have Michael Holding and Viv Richards coming on. I don't know who I'm going to have. Well, as I mentioned to you before, I do have close ties professionally with Cricket because Cricket West Indies is my client. So that's kind of easy to get. <laughs> One degree of separation with those. <laughs> Marguerite, we're sort of coming up to the end of our time. Yes. Um, do you have any um, insights for people who are trying to progress in their current career or thinking about moving, transitioning somewhere else? 
Well, I'll share the spark, the starting point for the leadership coaching that I do, which is around defining success on your terms. What does success mean to you? No one else. We speak about climbing the ladder of success, but sometimes people climb the ladder of success and find it's the wrong ladder for them. And so become very clear about what what really brings you joy. It's your own path of success because that's what keeps you going. I mean, I, I decided long ago that I do not want to build a Fortune 500 company. I am happy doing what I do. I love working intimately with relatively few clients who I choose. So I don't work with clients that I don't want to work with. That's because I'm not scaling or I'm scaling at a pace that's in tune with my definition of success. And so I think very get, get very clear on what success means to you, not just only in terms of work, but in, in all aspects of your life. When I had my children, I realized that I had to spend time on my children. And I, I would always say, you know, I'll always have a second chance at a career, but I'll never have a second yeah. chance at parenting. You know, I made some trade-offs, some decisions. My children still don't think I spent enough time with them, but they'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> They're ungrateful, Marguerite. <laughs> you didn't come to my sports day. <laughs> Like, yeah, the one time in the how many years you were at school, I didn't turn up for the sports day. It's funny, Marguerite, because when I when I was playing sport, when I was playing cricket, I hated my parents coming. I, <laughs> I, I got so nervous when because they got nervous. That made me more nervous. Yeah, I, I was actually quite happy when they weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but you do your best. You do your best. Yeah. Just remember that life is short. You know, it passes in in a jiffy. I started reading more and more of the Stoics um, since the pandemic. And, you know, one of the Stoic, Stoic tenets is memento mori, remember death. Totally, yeah. And, you know, every day I just like, okay, yeah, remember death. And then go on and live life because life is short and it's uncertain. I don't want to say we can't waste, wasting it doesn't mean that you're not, that you're busy doing things. It means you're busy doing the things that bring you joy. If you're not busy doing things that bring you joy, then you're wasting a life. I just love that point, the whole momentum mori thing, because, you know, like, what is the worst thing that can happen to, to yeah. most of us? Um, it, it, lo losing a job or not getting that promotion or uh, you're falling out with a friend. Yeah, it's it, it's painful, but, you know, there, there are, there's a much bigger thing down the road, which you cannot do anything about. And especially given what's been happening with the pandemic and all the struggles that people are going through. I think just appreciating what you have, um, you know, have, having a chat with your parents or your siblings or whatever it is, those small things, because that's not going to be around forever, is it? So no guarantees at all. And I think the third thing that I would share is, um, Try not to make yourself stressful to other people. Be pleasant, be nice, be kind, be caring. All the things that you want other people to be for you. No, yeah, no, I lo love that point. And Marguerite, before we end, um, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to who's helped you in your life or your career? Oh, I uh, started reading Marcus Aurelius' Aurelius's Meditations. He was the Stoic yeah, of course, yeah. thousand years ago. And the first part of that is he's listing all of these people and what he learned from each of them. And I think that is fascinating. 
I think I would have to say a big thank you to my, my siblings. They are my Douglas and Carol. They are my rock. We're extremely close and very joyful with each other. I, you know, the, the Rex, the recognized expert community is just wonderful. I, I just, there's just so much love in this group. And I think it reflects Dory. I haven't had the pleasure of speaking or meeting with her. I hope she comes to Toronto, but she is such a role model for me. Cool. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's brilliant. That's, that's fantastic. Um, and, and by the way, before I get in trouble with my parents, Mom and Dad, I do love you, <laughs> but you were you were quite stressful. But actually, it, my mom was cool. It was my father who got way too stressed out about the whole thing. So I not only had to like play my match, I had to like pass it by my father. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? With time, all of that pales into insignificance. Yeah, no, no, you totally. Realize, yeah, you just realize like, well, so my siblings and I, we speak about our mother a lot. When you read the books, you'll see. And then on daddy's birthday, I said, we don't talk about daddy's that much, you know. And then we went through this long WhatsApp conversation about, you know, the gifts that our father had given us. And they are amazing gifts as well. So after a while, you get over the, the, the tr- more traumatic parts and you realize, you know, yeah, he, he did his best. My mom did her best. And I'm very grateful for the gifts, for the gift of them being my parents. Yeah, and I think that's a great note to end on. I think, look, especially as a parent, you're going through this you know, for the first time. There's no real handbook on how, how you do it. And yeah, a lot of people are working it out as they go along. And I think, look, as long as you do your best and yes. try, it's not always going to work out the way you want. But then sometimes when you do have those disappointments, then it, it could be that that's the way it's meant to be. It's sort of written in the stars and some yes. respect so they say uh what did i hear once disappointments open the door for greater appointments something yeah, like that that's pretty cool i like yeah. that Isn't yeah that nice? uh, brilliant um anyway margaret it's been such a pleasure um having you on the show um i think we've covered a huge amount of ground and yeah. i will make sure all your um details are in the show notes so um the listeners can uh get in touch with you and anyway, enjoy the rest of your day in toronto i will take you care too. Bye, Harsha. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.